This podcast is made possible by thousands of dedicated listeners just like you. Be a part of this powerful three-decade legacy of evangelization by visiting materdayradio.com or downloading the Hail Mary Media app. And thank you for joining us on the bridge between your faith and everyday life. The Holy Spirit continues to set hearts on fire with the love of Christ and inspire people to bring the good news to a world that is aching to hear it. Welcome to Blazing the Trail, a weekly show dedicated to the church's mission of evangelization. Now, here's your guide on this grand adventure, Catholic singer, songwriter, author, and speaker, Miriam Marston. And welcome back to Blazing the Trail here on Mater Dei Radio. I am your host, Miriam Marston, and it's great to spend this time with you each week as we take a closer look at what it means to be an evangelizer, someone who goes out into the world to share the good news of the saving love of Jesus Christ. And I'm joined this week by Sister Alicia Torres, who is a spokesperson for the Eucharistic Revival, which has been called for by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Sister Alicia will walk us through the different phases of this nationwide revival and also why the bishops decided that now was the time to do this, so I'll let her get into those details in our interview. But before I do that, I'd like to share a little story with you, one I might have shared before, but it came to mind when Sister Alicia mentions in our conversation about even the the smallest child having a religious sense. And if you've been listening to this show for a while, you'll know that I love to lean on anecdotes from everyday life. And the examples often involve my nieces and nephews who have shown me on so many occasions this religious sense that Sister Alicia refers to. My nephew received his first Holy Communion in the spring of 2019. He and his classmates spent the school year preparing and learning and praying, and then the day arrived and and all the children were dressed in their Sunday best, and it was really a lovely Mass at the parish, and it's always great to see the children receive their first Communion. And that night, my brother-in-law was sitting with his son, just doing a review of the day before bed, and when he asked how his day was, my nephew responded, It's not possible to have a better day than today. And you know, I could do multiple shows on the topic of the Eucharist, and with the revival going on, I'm pretty certain that I will in fact be revisiting this topic, but in his simple words, my nephew summed up the wonder that is receiving the body of Christ. After all, it really is the closest we can get to the life of heaven, and I think my nephew was right. That makes for a pretty great day. And this is precisely what the bishops want us to rediscover, the spectacular, marvelous, miraculous nature of communion, of the Eucharist, of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. You know, from an evangelizing perspective, we can sometimes be intimidated at the prospect of speaking about the Eucharist to those who are not Catholic. But I found that when I'm speaking with those who are perhaps less familiar with the faith and sacramental worldview— I begin simply with the notion that God is love, because anyone can understand that it is the nature of love to draw close. Well, if God is love and perfect love at that, then He will desire to draw close indeed, and you simply can't get any closer than Holy Communion, than actually consuming the very body of the one who loves us perfectly. 
It's extraordinary, isn't it, how God's love doesn't stop at the border of our skin. It wants to go right past that into our bodies so that we are physically nourished by the very life and love of God, which also gives us an insight, by the way, um, into that interesting line that Jesus tells his disciples when he says that his food is to do the will of the one who sent him. And so to help us to reflect on all of this, I invite you to listen to my conversation with Sister Alicia, who shares about the role of the Eucharist in her own journey of faith, and then I'll be back with a few words on the other side of the interview. Well, I'm delighted to welcome Sister Alicia Torres to the show. Sister Alicia is a member of the Franciscans of the Eucharist of Chicago, and she serves on the executive team of the National Eucharistic Revival. Sister Alicia, it's just wonderful to have you on today. How are you? I'm doing great, Miriam. It's really good to be with you. Well, I can't wait to to share with our listeners more about the revival and all the work that's going on behind the scenes as well. Um, But I would love to hear a little bit more of what led you to this moment. Sister, how, how did you yourself experience evangelization? And maybe in particular, um, kind of being evangelized Eucharistically? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, you know, I have these memories from when I was very young. My parents were the custodians of the chapel where we went to Mass. Um, and so my mom would bring us every day to check the church, but we would make a visit. And at that time, like I knew Jesus was in the tabernacle. But it was a more old school Catholic church. So Mary statue was on one side and Joseph statue was on the other. Um, And so I'd always feel like, oh, I don't want St. Joseph or Mary to feel like I'm giving one more time than the other. So I was more focused on going to the Mary side and then going to the Joseph side. Um, But then when we started preparing for First Communion, I was like, well, Jesus is in the middle too. (laughs) So I don't want to forget him. Um, But I think that there was a very, um, I think, appropriately appropriate piety that my mom had. Um, And so as we got older and we started going to Catholic school, I was homeschooled until I was in eighth grade. Um, We went to a school where we had mass every day, you know, and that was really special. But even at that point in my life, I still didn't understand what it meant that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus. Like to me, it was, well, I believe the Eucharist is Jesus. And that's really important to me but I didn't have a heart experience yet. It was more of conviction um, and tradition, and it was certainly the right thing to do. So it wasn't until I got to college um, that I started to have this awareness that I could have a personal relationship with Jesus. And part of that was through working in the pro-life movement and seeing so many peers on campus who were just so unhappy, you know, and like, of course, the right to life kind of hits at the core of of our identity as human beings. What does it mean to be a man, a woman created in God's image and likeness? And I mean, if we're made in God's image and likeness, then there has to be some joy and there has to be some, you know, happiness. But it seemed like a lot of young people just weren't happy and they weren't joyful. Um, And so I started to kind of re-examine my own Catholic faith. And um, I know that there was this moment where not only going to daily mass most of the time, but starting to spend some time in Eucharistic adoration. And that's kind of when it just like exploded of like, oh my goodness, like I can have, or Jesus wants to have this personal relationship with me and I can have this relationship with him and he knows me and I can know him. And then the mass 
became more real and then my life became more real. And then there's like this sense of being called to be a religious sister. And what does that mean? And will I be happy? Will I be loved? And like kind of letting that fight out in my heart and really just Jesus is fighting for my heart, right? Um, And certainly there were many people along the way, but ultimately all of those people were pointing me back to the Eucharist. Um, So he he just has his way, you know? Um, And eventually he clearly won and I've been a sister for 13 years. And I mean, just like any vocation, right, Miriam? There's no easy life. You know, there's no easy Christian journey every vocation has a cross, but the cross in our tradition leads to glory. You know, and so we believe that if we walk with Jesus, if we're faithful, he's never not faithful. Um, and the goal is the kingdom. So we're not in like this short-term race where we've got this long-term perspective. Um, and that, that makes all the difference. You know, the little sacrifices, the more in love we are, the more loved we know we are. Like yeah. those little sacrifices become less and less Um, overwhelming and even the big sacrifices eventually I hope they won't be so scary (laughs) (laughs) yeah no I I loved what you said about the the presence of the cross in the midst of all of this and I there's a quote that comes to mind I've used it a few times on this show where Pope St. John Paul II talks about uh, what awaits us on the far side of the cross Um, but you can't dodge or skip the cross it's like saying we're going to pull Good Friday out of the whole story and in reality, that's not, that's not how the story plays out. Um, you know, sister, you mentioned how people pointed you in the direction of the Eucharist. And, and because again, we, we want to be a little, we want to be practical about, uh, you know, what it means to be an evangelizer. Can you share a little bit where there are actually people inviting you to mass, like bringing you to adoration, uh, giving you a pamphlet on the Eucharist? What, what did that kind of look like? If you can remember Yeah. So when I was really young, I remember the parish priest, Father Damien um, Abitizio, he was a Benedictine from the Latrobe Monastery in Pennsylvania. And he was an older priest. And of course, I was, you know, like six, seven, eight years old. But I remember that he just had a really lovely friendship with our family. I remember that anytime I would go back to the sacristy, you know, like to say hi after mass, he'd always have time to say hi and answer my questions. Um, he's the first person that ever taught me anything in the kitchen. So he taught us how to make bread, the bread from his monastery. Um, he took us to Six Flags. Um, he may have been the first person to ever take me and my siblings to a movie. Uh, we went to see Oliver and Company. And so there was this really beautiful, healthy relationship that this priest had with our family that helped to make the priesthood not just this distant thing, but this yeah. close experience really of the love of God. You know, and so because we had those familiar opportunities to spend time with our priest, then of course, like going to mass, it's like, well, I know that man up there and he's a real person. And here he is doing this incredible thing that I don't fully understand, but because I trust him, I know that he cares about me and loves me and he loves my family. Like, of course I want to be here because this must be important too. Um, Father Damien was really influential. Um, And then as I got older, (laughs) there was... Uh, there are many other people along the way, a couple more. One would be a religious sister who taught me in high school and middle school, Sister um, Marie Jean. And she had a deep love for Jesus in the Eucharist. And that flowed from her love of Christ in the Eucharist, flowed her desire for everyone to have the right to life. And so she was the one who got me involved in the pro-life movement. 
Um, but so often before anything that we would ever do, we would either pray before the blessed sacrament or have mass or there would be masses, you know, so that, that activism was connected back to and flowed from the Eucharist. Um, and then, yeah, when I got older in college, I had this wonderful woman who was my mentor, Mary Louise Curry. She worked for the Archdiocese of Chicago and I worked for her in the pro-life office, but she and her husband, Brian, were just such faithful Catholics you know, and they live their marriage so faithfully and with so much love. And, you know, they had sufferings in their marriage. They had struggles, um, not in their relationship, but just various things, um, the crosses that they had to carry. And yet she was always so joyful. And she, you know, when she went to mass, you could see that she really loved Jesus and she believed the Eucharist as him. Um, and so the witness of so many people whose lives had been touched by the Eucharist always surrounded me. Um, and not to mention all the Jesuits who were really influential on me while I was in college and people in my own family, my mother, my great grandmother, many, many people who took their faith seriously. Um, so I can't imagine that all of those people together and people that I can't even name, you know, have all been part of that story. Oh, well, praise God for each of those who you've named and those who who go unnamed, but who still were so pivotal during your journey to draw you closer to Christ in the Eucharist. Now, for those who are just tuning in again, I'm speaking with Sister Alicia Torres. Uh, she's a member of the Franciscans of the Eucharist of Chicago and serves on the executive team of the National Eucharistic Revival. And that's where, Sister, I'd love to, to move the conversation in the direction of this revival some of our listeners, this might be the very first time they're hearing about this. What is going on with this revival and, and why now, sister? Absolutely. So the National Eucharistic Revival is an initiative, um, I think even better stated, an invitation mm -hmm. of our American bishops to refocus the gaze of the eyes of the church upon our Lord Jesus and the Holy Eucharist. Um, so some of your listeners may be aware that in the last, in recent years, particularly a study that came out from the Pew Research Forum in 2019, indicated that an overwhelming majority of Catholics don't believe what the church teaches about the Eucharist, that it's the real presence of Jesus. And I want to just nuance that statistic a little bit because the research doesn't say that 70% of Catholics reject the teaching. It says that they don't believe. So this includes people who reject and also who don't understand what the church teaches, what the doctrine truly is. Um, and so I think there's more hope than discouragement in that statistic. Yes, it's a little overwhelming and it is objectively a crisis that 70% of Catholics don't believe, but it's not that 70% are rejecting. And I really want to emphasize that. Um, so that we don't have an impression that 70% of hearts are closed. Yeah. You know, and for even those who might reject the teaching, it doesn't mean that their hearts are closed. And so like any other crisis moment in church history, we want to refocus our gaze upon the source, upon Jesus, mm -hmm. who is truly present in the Eucharist at Mass. And we have that opportunity to extend that experience with him in Eucharistic adoration. Um, so the bishops are inviting the whole church, the whole church to refocus their gaze upon our Lord in the Eucharist and to experience this three-year movement toward a National Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis in 2024. Wow. But our hope is that the National Eucharistic Revival 
doesn't just begin this past Corpus Christi 2022 and doesn't end Pentecost to 2025, but rather that it lives far beyond that and far beyond our ability to see. Um, so right now we are in what we're calling the year of diocesan revival. So this will go all the way till Corpus Christi 2023, next June. And the focus this year is on equipping and meeting the needs of those who are more in leadership positions in our church, our clergy, our principals, people that work in dioceses, other Catholic institutions, trying to help provide opportunities to deepen our own experiences of Jesus in the Eucharist, to help represent the teaching, to help clarify what is it that we believe, to provide resources and opportunities where people can come to a clear understanding of how can we share this good news with the people of our day and age. So there'll be various conferences around the country. We're really proud and excited to offer a team of national Eucharistic preachers. These are priests from dioceses and religious communities around the country who were specially selected and trained to help, in a sense, serve at the front end of the revival to go into dioceses and to preach and proclaim this wonderful news that Jesus is truly with us in the Eucharist. Um, So we'll be preaching at clergy days, youth rallies, diocesan Eucharistic congresses around the country. Um, And if your diocese or y'all are interested in having a preacher come, bishops or their delegates can request a preacher to come in. So that's a really exciting part of the diocesan year. And so all of this formation and kind of um, ministering to serving those that are already on the team in a sense will lead to parish year, a year of parish revival in 2023. And so we're hoping for everything that happened kind of on a larger level to start to seep down naturally and organically into parishes and other Catholic institutions. Um, So things like Eucharistic small groups, ways to help invite families into deepening their own understanding of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And at the heart of all this, and what the bishops very much want us to keep at the front of our mind is understanding the mass and the beauty of the mass and what's truly happening that we're not just remembering what happened 2000 years ago, but we are entering into and reliving the Paschal mystery and all of those graces of the passion, death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, And that's just, I mean, for me personally, I'm sure I've only just scratched the surface of what the mass is. So there's just a wealth of treasure and riches and depth and, and love ultimately to discover there. Um, and I think if Catholics really understood what was going on at mass, we wouldn't be building churches fast enough. Yeah. You know, so I think just that in and of itself is just like a golden opportunity. Um, but it might take a long time and that's okay. So that parish year is to help bring it down to that next level. And then to start this national movement towards the Congress in 2024 in Indianapolis, we're hoping for over 80,000 Catholics to come together to celebrate um, in a spirit that's much more an environment that's much more like a world youth day than it is like a conference. There's okay. a celebratory nature to it. Um, there is an opportunity for people to share their testimony, to grow deeper in their understanding. And then the bishops hope and desire to commission tens of thousands of Eucharistic missionaries to take this message to the margins, to those who may not believe at all, to those who are suffering in various ways. Um, and, and from there, really, the sky is the limit um, yeah. on what the Holy Spirit will do through this movement. That's a, a, a beautiful roadmap that you've laid out for us, Sister Alicia. Thank you. And, you know, if I'm, I'm listening to this and I know others who might be tuning in saying, okay, that sounds great. What can I do now? 
I know we're in the diocesan phase. Where where can people go to learn more? Is there a way that we can get dialed into things at the present moment? Absolutely. I would encourage everyone and invite everyone to visit the website, eucharisticrevival.org. That's just eucharisticrevival.org. It's a wonderful, beautiful, well-presented opportunity to learn more, to access resources, and to get involved. And so right now, there are three ways you can get involved. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter, which will introduce original content every week. It'll be going on for the full three years of the revival. We'll be highlighting different events around the country, offering reflections and articles to help inspire and deepen our faith and understanding of the Eucharist. There'll be videos and podcasts, all kinds of all kinds of wonderful content there. There's also a way that you can sign up to be a prayer partner, to be an intercessor for the revival. We need innumerable people to pray for the success, for the safety, for an openness to the Holy Spirit as the plans continue to unfold. Um, and then there's another, there's a couple of other opportunities, actually, if you have a testimony that you'd like to share in your own experience on the Eucharist, there's a way that you can submit your testimony. And then there's also another place where it says, would you like to do even more? Like, do you want to get directly connected to the revival and serve it in some way? And you can also submit your name for that. So there's many ways already to get involved. And then I'd also encourage, especially people in the pews, reach out to your pastor, to the pastoral team at your parish, ask, how can I help um, make the revival happen in our parish, what's happening in our diocese. Um, many dioceses have already planned a Congress or an event for their people. So check that out as well. You know, as we get close to wrapping up the interview, Sister Alicia, I often like to ask my guests if you could leave us with um, just some hope and encouragement, specifically how how is the Eucharist the source of our hope in a world that often seems a a little hopeless or aimless or restless at times. Um, how does the Eucharist break into that and become a profound sign of hope in our world? Mm, that's a great question. You know, I, I think immediately of a story from my classroom last year. As I teach kindergarten through fourth grade religion in a in an inner city Catholic school, and I was with kindergarten, and of course, um, all year with all the students, there were different ways that we were opening our hearts to discover that the Eucharist is Jesus, even with a little five-year-old. So we had done some different lessons about six weeks prior to when the story took place. And so I began a class. There's about 18 kindergartners and their job or their work was to draw a picture of Jesus. That was the only, that was the only thing that they were told to do. And so I started to walk around the classroom and look at the pictures that they drew. And some of them had drawn themselves with Jesus, like and Jesus was holding their hand. And there's a young boy, a little boy in the classroom um, who is majority nonverbal. He really mm. can express himself with words, not because he's unable to speak, but because of, um, of different traumas that he's experienced. And so I walked over to him and I looked at his little piece of paper and he had drawn a circle with a cross in the middle. Mm-hmm. And I, I said to him, what, what did you draw? And he just kept pointing at the circle and saying, God, that's God, that's God. And he had never indicated to me before that he was making a connection that that piece of bread becomes Jesus. But there we were six weeks after any lesson directly on the Eucharist. He's told to draw a picture of Jesus and that's what he draws. 
And this is a child who has really suffered in his life. Um, so if that's not a cause for hope, I'm not really sure what is, you know, and I really want to encourage your listeners, especially the smallest child has a religious sense. And if your child's been baptized, the Holy Spirit is in your child and parents, you have such a profound and beautiful responsibility to bring your children to Jesus. So don't be afraid. You can do this. You really can. And the gift that they give back to you of their own faith is beyond anything you can imagine. So I'd encourage, especially the parents and those who are with small children, they're never too young to discover Jesus and the Eucharist are the same thing. Absolutely never too young. Oh, what a wonderful note to end on, Sister Lucia. Thank you so much for your time today. And may God continue to bless you and all your efforts connected with the Eucharistic revival. God bless you. Thank you, Miriam. You too. On their website, the bishops state that the vision of this Eucharistic revival is to inspire a movement of Catholics across the United States who are healed, converted, formed, and unified by an encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist, and who are then sent out on mission for the life of the world. I want to close this episode on this note of mission, and to do that, I'll turn to the 2021 document that the bishops released entitled The Mystery of the Eucharist in the Life of the Church. In the conclusion, they write, Pope Benedict XVI reminded us that the love that we celebrate in the sacrament is not something we can keep to ourselves. By its very nature, it demands to be shared with all. We are not the only ones in need of the love that Christ has shown us. We are called to help the rest of the world experience it. What the world needs is God's love. It needs to encounter Christ and to believe in Him. The Eucharist is thus the source and summit not only of the Church's life, but also of her mission. Jesus is sent by the Father for the salvation of the world. At the very end of the celebration of the Eucharist, we who have received the body and blood of Christ and have been incorporated more profoundly into His mystical body are likewise sent out to proclaim the good news for the salvation of the world. Go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. Pope Francis has insisted that evangelization is a task that belongs to every member of the Church, not just a few specialists. What is essential is not that one have advanced training, but rather that one discover through Christ the love that God has for us, and that one desire to lead others to that same joyful discovery. Anyone who has truly experienced God's saving love does not need much time or lengthy training to go out and proclaim that love. All that is needed is for one who has known that love, the love that is displayed most preeminently in the Eucharist, to tell other people about it. Again, that's from the 2021 Bishop's Document on the Mystery of the Eucharist. And my friends, if you have experienced that saving love of Christ, then please go and share that with someone who needs to hear this love proclaimed. And let us each be a part of this revival and help wake up the world with Eucharistic wonder. Thank you so much for tuning in. Again, my name is Miriam Marston, and I hope you'll join me next time as we continue these reflections on the mission of sharing God's love with the world. Until then, stay close to Christ. God bless you all. You've been listening to Blazing the Trail 
a weekly show dedicated to the church's mission of evangelization. For more information on Miriam Marston and her work, plus an archive of our past shows, visit us online at matradayradio.com or download the Hail Mary Media app. Blazing the Trail is produced at the studios of Matraday Radio in Portland, Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend. You can support this vital mission of evangelization through materdayradio.com or the Hail Mary Media app. And thank you for helping us lead souls to Jesus through the Blessed Virgin Mary.